welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Stanley Fish, Professor of Law at Florida International University and currently Florsheimer Distinguished Visiting Professor of Law at Yeshiva University Benjamin N. Cardozo School of Law. We will discuss his new book, The First, How to Think About Hate Speech, Campus Speech, Religious Speech, Fake News, Poth Truth, and Donald Trump, which is published by Simon & Schuster, uh, Atria One Signal Publishers. So welcome to the show, Stanley. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm so delighted we can have you on to talk about this really provocative and and timely book. And as listeners may have guessed from the subtitle, there is an awful lot in there. Uh, But before we start, or rather as an initial way of starting, I I mean, I, I I know that this book is really consistent with a lot of the themes from your your prior work. Um, and, and I wonder, is it a reaction to particular events or developments or more kind of a continuation of work you'd already been doing or kind of an amalgamation of both? I think it's more a continuation of the exploration of uh, freedom of speech issues uh, that I've been engaged in since the early 90s. So was there something particularly prompting this book or a way in which it's different from previous work you've done in the similar areas? Well, this book is perhaps more comprehensive or is intended to be more comprehensive uh, than my earlier work on the First Amendment. And I tried to pick out those areas of the First Amendment that seem to me to be most problematic uh, and most related to, today, to today's public concerns. So, of course, hate speech, everyone has a view of it, uh, and more of it seems to be produced every day. Everyone also thinks about what's going on in campuses and uh, how to conceptualize and deal with it. The question of religious speech is perhaps not so familiar uh, to a general audience, uh, but nevertheless, it's extremely important. And the recent Supreme Court uh, decisions that came out in June and July were very much decisions, uh, at least three or four of them, about religious speech. Then, of course, we are continually told uh, by uh, politicians on every side of the aisle uh, that fake news is inundating us and that this is the result of our now living in a post-truth world. So I wanted to investigate exactly what fake news is and what it means to be living in a post-truth world, if we are. And finally, Uh, because of the extraordinary prominence in uh, the public spotlight uh, of President Trump, all of these issues uh, happened to wind around uh, to President Trump. So he seemed to me to be a logical concluding point uh, to some uh, some, uh, of the strains of the argument. Well, so you begin the book by talking about free speech as kind of an abstract principle and notice a kind of tension or paradox in this sort of uh, absolutist positions on both sides of what it means to think about free speech, specifically instead of free speech as an absolute kind of intrinsic value as opposed to free speech as something that shades into this distinction between speech and action. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, why you see that dichotomy as being problematic and and why the both sides seem to be relying on their own versions of a kind of fallacy. Well, it seems to me that the that, that the uh, the conflict or opposition uh, could be 
said to be between free speech rhetoric as we receive it uh, from our newspapers, from various publications by the American Civil Liberties Union uh, on the one hand, and then the actual life of the doctrine of freedom of speech uh, in American jurisprudence. Uh, and uh, what I'm saying uh, in this book is that the rhetoric and the uh, experience uh, don't match up, but nevertheless, uh, that that's okay, because we need free speech rhetoric uh, in order to stand up for and affirm some basic American values, but we also need free speech doctrine to be flexible and mutable so that it can do the kind of work that we ask it to do. Does that make any sense? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I got the impression reading it that you were suggesting that it's like, it's sort of tempting to take very hardline positions on one side or the other of thinking about free speech, speech, free speech as a kind of fundamental philosophical concept. But maybe we need to be more flexible in terms of how we think about it as a means to an end itself. Yes, I think it's more of a pragmatic phenomenon than a philosophical phenomenon. Uh, and that would mean that in some sense, free speech is a political value uh, rather than an abstract or uh, moral or foundational value. Uh, it's something that we value, but we don't value it to the exclusion of everything else. And in many instances, we balance that value against others uh, and come out with some kind of accommodation. That accommodation then gets rewritten or reconfigured when the next set of free speech cases come before the Supreme Court. So that's what it's like. It's like any other political phenomenon. It's continually changing. Uh, its components are always being debated. The definition of it is always uh, in, uh, in, in a state of transformation. Well, I, mean, I thought your discussion of hate speech really nicely illustrated this dichotomy, because it seems like on one side, we've got people saying all speech should be protected no matter what, and the government can never regulate it. And people on the other side saying, that's just crazy. Some speech is obviously terrible and awful, and the government really ought to do something about it. Why, why do you think that's not, uh, well, I mean, that's obviously not a reconcilable problem, but why do you think one of those positions can't be right or wrong? For one reason is that no one in the world has ever believed that all speech should be protected, no matter what he or she says. Uh, well, my kind of basic uh, test case, as you know, um, is the uh, essay by the 17th century English poet John Milton, Aria Pagetica, uh, which is a celebration of freedom of expression and an attack on especially uh, prior restraint, the form of censorship uh, that he uh, that he believes uh, always does bad work. But two thirds of the way through the track. Uh, Milton pauses to say in relation to the argument that he's been making for complete freedom of speech, at least until something has been published. He then says, but I don't mean Catholics. That is, he doesn't want to include Catholics um, in his set of recommendations uh, because he believes that it's the point of Catholicism, and this is, of course, a debatable argument, to shut down free speech 
So in order to further the freedom of speech, Catholics must be silenced, or as he says, extirpated, that is, torn out by the roots. Now, a lot of people who are admirers of Milton, as I certainly am, uh, want to excuse him for uh, making this exception and talk about the fact that as a person living in the 17th century, uh, he didn't have the uh, advantage of the philosophical sophistication that we now have. But I want to say that the Milton move is a move that everyone makes, that no one finally believes that everything should be said and allowed. And at one point or other, everyone will uh, discover uh, that uh, he or she uh, has a Milton-like moment and says, no, I didn't mean that. Well, so how do we square that circle, though? I mean, like, how do we figure out what kinds of speech are legitimately suppressed then? Or is it just a political question of, you know, if you're not powerful enough to make yourself heard, then, you know, them's the breaks too bad for you? Well, I don't know. In your phrase, just a political question, I might quarrel with the word just, because uh, I think it is a political question. Um, and uh, it's it's a political question which is to be answered in terms of calculations of likely effects, good and bad. Uh, and here, uh, I like the formulation of uh, a great American jurist uh, with the wonderful name, Learned Hand, who when discussing freedom of speech and how to deal uh, with speech that seemed to be uh, dangerous uh, or, or even threatening to the fabric of civilization. Uh, here's what Hans said. He said, look at the consequences and costs of regulating the speech. And then, on a column on the side, look at the consequences and costs of allowing this particular form of speech to flourish. Then figure out which costs more and do the other one. You follow? And that's that, that's the learned hand formula. It's a cost benefit. It's a it's you know it's a basic economic cost benefit analysis uh, applied to freedom of speech. Now, obviously, that formula doesn't have fixed parameters uh, or fixed values, and that its operation is uh, more often than not going to issue in different kinds of solutions where people decide for a variety of reasons, well, this form of speech is awful, uh, but we think our society can tolerate it and would be strengthened if we do tolerate it, whereas that form of speech is so incredibly bad uh, that to uh, allow it would be a th to allow a threat to what we value and cherish most. In many European countries and Canada, as you know, uh, have uh, uh, made that kind of decision um, in a uh, more severe way than we in the United States have. That is, Canada and many Western uh, democracies uh, are more willing to say of certain forms of speech that should not be allowed um, in the public airways. Well, so I mean, I, I'll confess that I'm personally very sympathetic to this kind of consequentialists way of looking at regulating speech. 
But it seems like it makes a nice segue into your discussion of free speech and and religion, because it seems like a lot of religious people, however you want to define religion, might be less sympathetic to those kinds of consequentialist impulses. Well, it depends, because at least in the cases that have been uh, emerging in the last 10 to 15 years with uh, increasing uh, frequency, what religious people desire uh, is the uh, ability uh, either to speak uh, their faith uh, in contexts where perhaps faith speaking was usually not welcome, or uh, in the name of uh, not being discriminated against, uh, to curtail uh, the speech of others uh, who may be uh, fiercely criticizing them. Uh, so what religious, what, what uh, strongly religious people, as I uh, call them in the book, want most of all is to have their speech, their forms of speech, protected and valued as much and indeed more than others. And that's where the conflict occurs. Because according to one reading of the free exercise clause of the First Amendment, that is, the state shall not burden the free exercise of its citizens, at least according to one reading, that means that the state cannot curtail acts performed by religious persons that would not be allowed if they were performed by non-religious persons. And that's a real problem. That's, that's, a, you could, that's, that's, that's if not a conundrum, uh, it, at least is a deep tension. Do you want to say, for example, as some people have argued recently, you cannot congregate on the beach in Miami, Florida, in ways that are perhaps conducive to the spread of the virus, but 300 yards away in a church, you can congregate because religion is such an essential part of the lives of these parishioners. Those are the kinds of conflicts that you now see uh, everywhere uh, with respect to uh, the First Amendment uh, and religious speech. Yeah, I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit more because what I, one of the things I found really interesting was the way you talked about this sort of fundamental incompatibility of the religious clauses with a kind of broader, more secular, liberal vision of freedom of speech and how trying to conform the two is actually, in a sense, rejecting the very way that religious people think about the values that they want to see vindicated. And of course, it depends to a certain extent on what kind of religion uh, you have. Uh, that is, if you're uh, someone like John Locke, uh, who is uh, always interested in, in keeping the peace um, as uh, much uh, as possible and therefore supports the distinction between public and private life uh, and doesn't want uh, uh, the church to be interfering in public life, then some of these problems won't arise. But if your religion is of a more aggressive kind, although aggressive is not the word that these religionists would accept, uh, and you believe that it's not only your duty to express your religious views and conduct your life 
um, in a certain way, let's say, in imitation of Christ, but it's also your duty to reform the state in the image of Christ or in the image uh, of whatever uh, deity or prophet uh, uh, you uh, believe in. Uh, so that 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 means that for strongly religious people, obligations to deity or to scripture or to the demands or commands of the prophet trump, now a word that is difficult to use in some circumstances, everything else. Uh, and uh, and the liberal uh, spirit, which informs our Constitution and to some extent informs uh, our judiciary and political life, the liberal uh, commitment is to treating all forms of expression equally, giving all, each of them a chance to be heard, then having the decision made by something called the marketplace of ideas, which, by the way, no one will ever find or really visit. Uh, and therefore, the claim by religious persons that their views are not only uh, to be respected, but are to be re uh, accepted as superior, uh, will uh, will fall on... Um, uh, on unhappy ears. Uh, that's a bad metaphor, but I'll stay with it. <laughs> well, I mean, you talk about this tension too as almost like a conflict of religions of a different kind. Why do, why do you think about it in that way? Well, because like any other strong view, liberalism is at base a faith. It's a faith in a number of things that we usually affirm uh, in our lives. It's a faith in uh, the primacy of individual choice. It's a faith uh, in government from the bottom up rather than uh, top uh, down. Uh, it's a faith uh, that includes as one of its great virtues tolerance uh, so that uh, one sh should not be intolerant of views uh, that are different uh, from your own. Uh, but it's still nevertheless a faith. Those are the components uh, uh, of, of that faith. And they come into direct conflict uh, with those religious persons who believe, and there are still many who do believe this, is that if you do not subscribe to the tenets of a political, political faith, you are going to hell. And also believe, and we're hearing this rhetoric again today, these days that is, that if certain uh, religiously based values are not uh, uh, are not baked into uh, the uh, core uh, of society. Uh, our society is on a downward spir spiral, uh, which will end in its destruction. Uh, all of that stuff is which has uh, you know a 16th or 17th century or even earlier uh, flavor uh, is is alive and well today. In 2020. Well, at the risk of belaboring the point, you, you, you observe in your book, and I've seen it myself, that a lot of the legal academy is spending a lot of time trying to use legal doctrine to, quote unquote, solve this particular problem around religious. And, and yeah, they'll never do it. Why do you think they 
can't, why do you think that won't or can't work? Well, it won't work because, uh, and the name that's usually associated with this effort, which is engaged in by extraordinarily learned and intelligent people. Uh, it's the name that uh, uh, it, I think uh, it should have is pluralism. It's the idea that we allow a plurality of voices. That's the basis uh, of our thinking about freedom of speech in, in democratic uh, society. Uh, but we should not ever allow one of those voices uh, to become preeminent or, or to declare itself as the one true voice to which all others would be subordinate. Now, as I said a moment ago, often religious persons do make claims like that. And the answer given by the uh, liberal uh, uh, legal, uh, members of the liberal legal academy is to try to group religion with other forms of discourse, which have, and these are formulas that uh, uh, you find in the pages of these authors, which have aspirational uh, ambitions, that is, uh, which are directed toward the general good of uh, a human persons rather than uh, to the specific accomplishments of anyone's, uh, of, of, of anyone's personal goals. And so the idea is to say, well, isn't religion like um, um, conservation? Or isn't religion like uh, the effort to remove discrimination uh, from our institutions? Or isn't religion like the effort uh, to, uh, to eliminate violence against women in our society? And the answer is, no, it isn't. Because none of those are allied to a deity and to a set of commands uh, and, uh, to, uh, and to a thesis uh, that, in fact, uh, uh, at least in some cases, uh, damns you uh, for not uh, agreeing with them. So pluralism attempts to take those parts of religion which can be seen as analogous to these other idealistic, uh, person-oriented uh, ways of thinking. But in doing so, must always leave out or expel what is going to be central to the religious person, the actual claim of absolute truth. Well, so maybe we could then pivot to your discussion of how these ideas play out in the context of of the academy um you know you're 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 well known for arguing that free speech is not an academic value which is a provocative idea which i've you know found very helpful in sort of thinking about you know what the role of the academy is. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you mean by that, because I think a lot of people hear that as being like really kind of iconoclastic and unusual. Yes, I don't think it is, but, uh, and there are a couple of people uh, who uh, agree with me, like uh, Robert Post, former dean of the Yale uh, Law School, a uh, good man to have on your side, I might say. Uh, what I'm saying basically is that Freedom of speech is, if it is anything, a democratic value. Uh, and uh, what it says to us is that each of us has a voice 
that uh, uh, is uh, uh, that that should be heard. Uh, each of our voices is in a democratic society equal. That doesn't mean that they are equally projected because of obvious differences um, in 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 resources. But nevertheless, the ideal is that every voice have a, has a chance uh, to be heard, uh, and none should be sent away in advance or uh, stigmatized. But in the academy, where the ethic is not freedom of speech, but freedom of inquiry, it is absolutely necessary to decide which voices are worthy of being heard and which voices are not going to get a classroom uh, or a university press book um, or some other uh, position in the university world. And in fact, much of the machinery in universities is dedicated to winnowing out persons. Uh, the, we're talking about tenure decisions, promotion decisions, publication decisions. Uh, I was a dean uh, for a number of years, and most of my year was spent uh, uh, administering such decisions. The point of which, again, uh, was uh, to uh, lessen the number of voices uh, that would be heard in, 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 in the academic uh, community. So that's what I mean. Free speech, in which expression is the first value and individual expression, uh, is affirmed, doesn't belong in the academy, where expression isn't the first value. The first value is trying to figure out the truth of some matter in the physical sciences, the humanities, or the social uh, sciences. And in order to do that, uh, you have to determine which of the persons vying for the podium or the microphone uh, or the megaphone uh, is, uh, in fact, qualified uh, to be heard and listened to. Does that make it clear? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if you could break that down a little bit more, because, I mean, it seems like even if we're not going to think about free speech in the academy the same way we think of free speech in other contexts, we still think that the academy should protect certain kinds of expression for reasons that are intrinsic to the values that that institution is is pursuing. So how do we identify or how should universities identify the voices that they're going to highlight? And how should they distinguish between expressions that are protected in under academic norms versus uh, expressions that that aren't. What protection? What protections that are protected under academic norms did you have in mind? Well, I'm th I'm thinking in particular like when academics engage in speech activity of various kinds, you know, whether that's their scholarship or whether that's their role as a public intellectual or whether it's what they do in the private sphere, how should the institution think about what they're doing and whether or not the kind of speech acts that they engage in should have professional consequences for them? Well, the, the, uh, the, the measure of the quality of speech acts for faculty members should be professional, period. That is, uh, people should be allowed to teach a class or to have a position in a department uh, if their written work, usually written work, or work 
in the classroom um, indicates a high degree of knowledge of the field uh, and uh, of the uh, the variety uh, of issues that are considered important uh, in the field. And those, of course, that deciding who it is uh, that exhibits these qualities is, as I said a moment ago, uh, the business of, uh, of, 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 of many uh, committees uh, and offices uh, in the university. As for speech performed by faculty members outside of academic contexts, I don't think the university should pay any attention to that form of speech whatsoever. And nor do I think that the university should engage in that form of speech either. Uh, those are two separate theses, but they kind of go together. On the one hand, if you find that it's a faculty member who's saying things in, pub in, in, in the public, in a podcast, in letters to the editor, uh, or uh, in other ways, uh, which are at least to a large number of constituents in the university anathema, what do you do as an administrator? The answer is nothing. Uh, because your, because each faculty member has as much right as a citizen, uh, to say outrageous, uh, foolish, and in the eyes of some people, evil things as any other citizen. But no one has the right in the classroom to say things that are not, uh, professionally vetted. That's the distinction. Well, so I'm, the lawyer and nonprofit lawyer in me can't help yeah. but wonder sort of about the nitty gritty of that obligation and specifically what kind of obligation that puts on administrators, like drawing on your own experience as well. I mean, do you see that as a legal duty? And if so, what kind of a legal duty? Like, is it a legal duty to the institution or a legal duty to like impose from outside the institution or do you see it as more of kind of an aspirational duty related to the mission of the organization what's the it or that that was speaking about here well the, the the obligation of the administrator to observe the kinds of principles that you're describing when it comes well what i say in the book as you as you know it's the obligation of the administrator is to do his or her job and not to do other jobs, which may be, for a variety of reasons, uh, attractive or even perhaps uh, noble. So if you know that it's an educational institution that you're administering, and if you know what it is uh, that goes on in an educational institution, what are the practices and what are the goals of that practices, then it's quite easy, it seems to me, uh, to say, at least in terms of academic performance within the confines of the university, that this person is performing competently and responsibly, rather, at, at, whereas some other person might not be. That's the limit of what administration administrators should judge, the professional competence and performance of those they administer. Now, what those persons do uh, when they're not on the university campus or uh, uh, operating as someone uh, who has 
is self-identified and self-proclaimed as a member of the university community is, as I said before, nothing at all. Pay no attention, except when attacks, you know, when uh, I remember when, uh, well, when Ward Churchill was discovered to have written, not in an academic setting, but in some, I don't think there were, were podcasts then, uh, but on some website that was not academically connected, um, he described those who had uh, uh, died or suffered uh, in the World Trade Center bombings as little Eichmanns. Uh, and when that was unearthed, uh, I think, by a Fox News uh, reporter, uh, it, of course, generated a firestorm of criticism and demands uh, that he, Ward Churchill, be fired. And in fact, a friend of mine was then president of the University of Colorado, and she received a call from the governor of Colorado who said, you have to fire him. And she said, quite correctly, I can't. Uh, and why couldn't she? Because what he said, he had said as a citizen. Uh, and however it might rile or ruffle, um, you know, the feathers of the governor or of the, may perhaps the majority of citizens in Colorado, it had nothing to do with the assessment of his performance as an academic. That, I think, is a clean line, a clean and clear line. That can be uh, that can be observed. So I mean, just to follow on about that a little bit more. Um, so, so I mean, I, I can imagine a circumstance where it might be in the interests of the institution as an institution to divest itself of someone who's creating really bad press for the institution, but inconsistent with the mission of the institution to do that. And so it seems to me that. A person with fiduciary duties to the organization, to the institution, could have kind of conflicting concerns under those circumstances. Is it your position that the sort of charitable mission of the institution should take precedence over the sort of immediate financial or sort of public-facing concerns in the moment? Yeah, public-facing is, is a good phrase. Uh, yes, it is. Uh, we might uh, uh, think in this connection of uh, a name that has once again recently been in the news, John Yu, uh, Y-O-O-O, uh, who is a professor of law at the University of California at Berkeley uh, Law School, and who is widely known uh, to have been the author of the so-called torture memos uh, in the Bush administration. And again, the question is, how can a person like that uh, be, on the, uh, be a, a member in good standing uh, of a law faculty uh, in a public university? Uh, and certainly, uh, the presence of John Yu on that faculty is going to make a lot of people in the public and perhaps in the legal academy think less uh, of that faculty. And I'm going to say flatly that that's just one of the unhappy consequences of our living in a political world and where everything is reported almost instantaneously uh, and almost instantaneously every, everyone responds to what has been reported. Uh, but nevertheless, you have to hew to that line. 
you have to hew to the line between academic performance on the one hand and anything else on the other. So I wonder how, if at all, you think these values apply to student speech in an academic context? I mean, presumably if students are engaging in disruptive or non-academic speech, then that would be inappropriate in the same way it would be for a faculty member. Uh, But can and should students get similar kinds of consideration or should we think about them kind of fundamentally differently from? Well, if if I'm, I'm talking, we're talking here about students who are acting out on campus. Are we not, or, or, or did you have? Sure, sure. I'm wondering, like, you know, what if a student is taking like a really extreme academic position in a way similar to the way a faculty member might take an extreme academic position? Well, it's, that's I don't think on, on all fours with the examples that I've given uh, so far. So far, first of all, uh, it's hard for me to imagine a student taking an extreme academic position in the classroom. If a student speaks in a classroom or raises an issue in a classroom, which seems to the professor to be either extreme or beside the point, the professor should just shut him or her up, period. In other words, no latitude whatsoever should be given to student voices under the rubric of the First Amendment or free expression or or self-realization or anything else. Students are apprentices they are there to master materials uh, or to become familiar with materials that they, in fact, are not uh, yet in control of. That's their business. It's not their business uh, to be academically produ- provocative or to be academically anything except responsive uh, to the prompts of the instructor. Another way to say this and to cut through the the too many words that I added a moment ago, students have no rights. <laughs> students have no rights, except the right, and it's an important one, as I'm sure you would agree, to competent, and that's a, a, a stronger word than it sometimes uh, seems to be, to competent instruction. That is, if you as a student feel that you wandered into a class where the professor doesn't know what he or she is talking about, is not up to date in the materials, you know, is, is, for instance, I'm teaching a course on religion and the law in the fall, is teaching a course on religion and the law, um, you know, as the field existed in 1948 uh, or something like that, or doesn't uh, attend classes or doesn't hand in uh, essay corrected, correct, uh, doesn't correct the essays of his students. If you've, if, if you've, if your instructor commits these uh, academic sins, then you as a student have every right to protest and demand a change. But that's it. Other than that, students have no rights. If a student has views which he strongly believes in and wishes to express, and in fact, I took this course, he or she might say, just so that I could get to express these views and have them discussed. Forget about it. You might find there's a sympathetic instructor who says, oh, yeah, let's talk about that for a while. That would be the instructor's choice. Wouldn't be mine, obviously, but that would be the instructor's choice. But if the instructor said, sorry, um, that's not a topic we'll be taking up here or a line of inquiry uh, we we will be pursuing, 
let's get back to page 46. <laughs> that's, that's the way things should go. So would it be fair then to say that students have the right to expect their professors to adhere to their own academic obligations, and that's the extent of their rights in academic context? I think I would say yes to that question, but I'm not sure what content there was in it. You want to elaborate a bit? (laughs) Well, in the sense that students have the right in an academic context to object to the authorities in the institution if the professor in question is him or herself not satisfying the institutional obligations imposed on that professor. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. You you know, we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't have to. Now, now there are students who will, who want to opt out of someone's course, and there are administrations that will allow them to do so, uh, because that instructor uh, is associated with a academic point of view that the student believes um, uh, to uh, to be dangerous, uh, harmful, uh, racist, et cetera, et cetera. So that students now believe that they have the right to change uh, their, to have their uh, professor, professorial assignments changed uh, if a professor of theirs is teaching a course um, in a way that seems to them, to, to, seems to them uh, uh, to be wrong or hurtful or dangerous. So let's say, for example, um, this is an example. Let's say that you're teaching a course, uh, uh, as I have, uh, in which the topic of law and economics figures prominently. But there are students there who believe, for reasons that could be articulated, uh, that the whole entire law and economics enterprise uh, is misguided and uh, and uh, the uh, handmade uh, or uh, engine of neoliberalism and so must be expelled. You know the kind of thing I'm talking about. Uh, you know, the only response to that is don't take that particular course. <laughs> take another one. But you don't go into the course and say, oh, law and economics, I don't want any of that. You know, um, you know, I I, um, I want liberation theology. <laughs> Too bad. <laughs> so I I wanted to delve into another issue you talk about in the book, which is the concept of of fake news, and you talk about it in particular in the context of sort of tech utopian ideas that if there's just enough information available, then, you know, we'll be able to sort of get truthful information to people and solve all these kinds of problems. It doesn't seem to be working. And you give sort of some reflections on why why you think that is. And I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the problem of, of fake news and how we ought to think about the, that concept and what it means in relation to truth. Well, fake news is sometimes opposed, if not uh, explicitly, then implicitly, to quote-unquote real news. And I guess what real news would be would news that faithfully reported the facts. Well, no news has ever faithfully reported the facts, because the facts, when reported, uh, no matter how careful uh, the reporter has been, uh, can always be subject uh, to challenge. Uh, and uh, there are people who will, in fact, argue that the facts are not uh, as this researcher has put them forward. So you can't oppose 
fake news to real news. What I do is oppose fake news to news that emanates from institutions or organizations that have an aspiration to tell the complete truth, even though that aspiration can never really be realized. So the purveyors of fake news are those who don't care about the truth status of what they give out, uh, but just put it out in the world for variety uh, of, uh, of, of, of political um, and Machiavellian uh, reasons. So that's the distinction. And the problem recently, and I'm certainly not the first or the, the 50th person uh, to say this, is that uh, there's been a steady erosion in the status of those, public status, of those very institutions that have usually been thought to be the repositories of the right aspiration, which is the aspiration to get it right. Uh, whether you're talking about the general body of scientists uh, or the mainstream press uh, or the major network uh, night, nightly news, the uh, publishers of encyclopedias, uh, the Library of Congress, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All those organizations uh, which uh, have as their daily practice the desire to get things right have now been, what shall we say, uh, dissed, uh, debunked uh, uh, by all by parties from you know from almost uh, every political uh, direction tells you not to trust them. So the answer to the question that immediately arises then, what do you trust? And the answer that the internet utopians or uh, techno-utopians, as, as I and others call them, is what you should trust is data. Data that is unfiltered, uncurated, hasn't been delivered to us after gatekeepers uh, have vetted it. Uh, and the idea, as you put it in your initial question, is, is the more of that data we have, the more likely the truth will emerge. And I'm saying in this book, no, the more of that data we have, uncurated, unattached to any institution, non-filtered, uh, the more we will have small Lego-like bits of information entirely without authorization or pedigree, and therefore an extraordinarily rich resource uh, for those who want to fashion malevolent stories and then retail those stories to us. So the more speech, the better is the old slogan and one that free speech uh, enthusiasts often inform. And I'm saying, no, the more speech you have, the more likely it is that any effort to get at the truth is going to be obscured and harmed. Well, I feel like a lot of those utopian efforts are often described as democratic in the sense that they sort of are intended to devolve information and uh, decision making to a really individual level. Do you think? Do you think there's a way in which maybe, in order to do democracy well or effectively, that we need a little bit like maybe like to 
think about democracy differently or maybe even like think less democratically about information in some ways? Uh, yes, I don't think we should think democratically about information at all. And this, is, this isn't this is really just another version of the answer I gave to you, uh, some of your questions about the campus. Uh, what we want, remember, on campus are people, we want people in the classroom and writing in the learned journals uh, and publishing books uh, by, from university presses. We want those people to know what they're talking about. We're interested. Uh, we're interested in their uh, educational history, in their accomplishments, in the ways that they have influenced uh, uh, a, a, a discipline. That's what we want, uh, and we want to trust those people. So it is in the public sphere. What you want are institutions that have a proven track record uh, that. They are in the business, as I've said now three or four times, of trying to get things right. Um, and that doesn't, and that business is not furthered necessarily by allowing as many voices, uh, uh, as many voices as possible into the mix. So the, the democratic impulse doesn't work, I believe, in the university, nor does it work when we're talking about how to uh, receive the best form of news or information possible. Well, so Stanley, in, in closing, you note in the conclusion of your book that a lot of people seem to be concerned that we're kind of in what's often referred to as like a post-truth moment. Why do, you, why do you think those concerns are mistaken or exaggerated or, you know, how should we think about that problem differently? Well, if, <clears throat> again, Post-truth is often defined uh, as uh, a situation in which emotion, rhetoric, and persuasion uh, carry the day uh, more than uh, a re more uh, than uh, uh, basic. Uh, one might even say brute facts. So that uh, on the, we now supposedly are in a period where people can be persuaded. That, that something is true, they can be rhetorically manipulated into believing that something is true, as opposed to uh, those halcyon days, which never existed, uh, when uh, one could just look at the facts and conclude on the basis of the facts. This is the same business that I talked about a few moments ago. The idea that if you have unfiltered, unsponsored, is even perhaps a better word, uh, unsponsored information, you're going to get closer to the truth uh, than you would uh, if you had information that was being produced in some kind of uh, effort uh, of uh, persuasion, some kind of effort uh, of, of rhetorical power. I am saying, no, that's not the way it is. I'm saying, first of all, there's never been a moment in society, ours or any other, uh, when Truth was available simply by peeling away the the encrusted layers um, of of, uh, of rhetoric and persuasion. It's we've if if the ideal is to live in a society where truth can be in effect observed by mere clear seeing, there never has been such a society. We've always lived in a post-truth world. And the only question is, how do we operate in a post-truth world where the absolute 
truth, the truth that could not ever be challenged, the truth that leaps out and declares itself, uh, is unavailable. And again, I'll give the same answer that I've now given twice. We fashion institutions that try to do the best that they can. And insofar as they perform in that way, we give them our trust. And so we proceed in an imperfect, uh, but nevertheless, relatively grounded way. Well, Stanley, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed the book as much as I've enjoyed all of your work over the years. And uh, people should read it because uh, I thought it was great. And uh, and there's a lot more in there that we didn't have a chance to talk about. So thanks again. Mm-hmm.